Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, no surprise there. Mona Fawaz will talk about why gun battles are breaking out in the streets of Beirut. And the cultural critic Mark Deary will explore the allure of conspiracy theories today. Last week, I saw an article in the New York Times reporting that gun battles had broken out between rival sectarian militias in the streets of Beirut. This was the latest miserable development in a series of miseries that have befallen Lebanon, a 15-year civil war that sort of ended in 1990, repeated invasions and other military abuses by Israel, and an unfolding economic crisis that has resulted in mass poverty, shortages, and blackouts. Last August, an explosion in the port of Beirut caused by recklessly stored ammonium nitrate killed hundreds, wounded thousands, and left hundreds of thousands homeless. I thought an overview of what brought Lebanon and its capital city to this confluence of horrors would be in order. To help us understand, here's Mona Fawaz. She's a professor of urban studies and planning at the American University of Beirut. Mona Fawaz. I noted uh, a story in the newspaper the other day that uh, Beirut is experiencing militias fighting in the streets. And that sort of thing has plagued um, Lebanese history for some time. But I just read that and wondered what happened uh, to bring... um, the city and the country to, to this point? Um, has this been developing for some time? Is this an ongoing crisis, just the latest symptom of something that's been festering for a long time? What's, what's the story? What prompted this latest round of violence? Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you're asking this question because very often we hear chaos in Beirut, militias in Beirut, as if these senseless Middle Easterners are just inherently violent and we don't really know why they are. I think it's really important to understand that Lebanon is first in a region which is extremely uh, difficult. The entire Middle East has been uh, since at least uh, since colonization, the post-colonization, the establishment of the state of Israel in turmoil for all sorts of reasons. Lebanon in particular had a long civil war and the end of the Lebanese civil war in 1990 did not end with like tribunal for war or any kind of justice. It ended with uh, some kind of a deal in which the militiamen, the the guys who really the warlords who led the fight, basically agreed together that they would amnesty each other. They left the country for some kind of a conference uh, as warlords. They came back as businessmen. And for the last 30 years, they've basically played the role of statesmen, businessmen, whatever you want to imagine them. But there was never any accountability to what they did. And so the economic model that was set in place in the country was complete failure. And gradually, it became obvious that people were more and more impoverished. And eventually, uh, the country went bankrupt. What year was that bankruptcy? So that's in 2019. So two days ago was the anniversary of the October 2017 uprising. And I'm going through all these details just to say that, I mean, if you want to understand what happened last week, it's these exact same guys. And it's these exact same uh, warlords who, uh, one more time, when faced by a population that's asking for accountability for yet one more crime against it, whether it's the bankruptcy or the Beirut port blast that happened last year or anything else, will face you with a response that says, we'll bring you the civil war home. We'll start street fights. Choose street fights and accountability. You see what I mean? And that's exactly what we saw last week. I've read a World Bank report. I've read a couple of World Bank reports, which were, for that genre, very, very tough. One uh, had uh, the headline, Lebanon sinking, sinking into one of the most severe global crisis episodes amidst deliberate inaction. Uh, they thought this was going to be one of the three worst economic crises over the last century or two. Uh, mm-hmm. are, are these fair characterizations? This is not the kind of thing you usually yes. read from the World Bank. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, the World Bank has called it also a deliberate devaluation or a de- the, the way in which the political class has dealt with Lebanon's inability to pay back its internal debt and its financial meltdown is by throwing the entire weight on the middle and lower income groups. And so the outcome has been massive impoverishment. Over the last year and a half, the government has not entered any conversation for any bailout. 
Instead, we were seeing huge impoverishment. Today, uh, the UN and the World Bank estimate that about 70% of the Lebanese population are uh, below the poverty level. We're seeing for the first time in the history of the country, homelessness, children sleeping on the street, elderly people sleeping on the street. And this is faced with just total inaction. The government has not done one single step uh, to actually control this financial meltdown. Our financial currency has lost 90% of its value, and they continue to pass on the cost of this devaluation, the cost of the financial meltdown, on the middle and lower income groups who are struggling more and more. And of course, so that's where the World Bank is coming from. And I mean, if you normally talk to me, I would be uh, criticizing uh, austerity policies by the IMF, what the World Bank is saying. They are to the far left of our political class. Yeah, I was really stunned by the language of it. I mean, the concern about poverty and the ir- irresponsibility of the political elite, uh, the shifting of all the burden of adjustment that you described, um, it was very strong language for this that sort of institution. So let, let's step back a bit. The economy was dollarized, essentially, for, for, what, a decade or two? And then they ran out of dollars. Exactly. That's what they did. They basically ran a Ponzi scheme, where basically they sub- they subsidized the currency at way lower than its financial, than its actual value. But then the inflow of capital that was coming in was pumped back either to the to the state so that it can uh, spend it on all sorts of uh, corrupt deals or lost in corruption. So not only was there like sort of a scheme to attract foreign currency, particularly from Lebanese expats who couldn't find jobs in Lebanon, but that money was never built used to build an infrastructure or to build any kind of an economy, not even an inequitable economy. It was simply a Ponzi scheme in which Lebanese expatriates were incentivized to send their money to the country, given high interest rates, and eventually the country ran out of money because it was obvious that there was no place to invest this money. It was either in real estate or in the banking sector. We got to the point where a house in Beirut was more expensive. An average house of the same size would be more expensive than a, ha- than a house in a European city. And uh, I'm saying Beirut, this is a city that didn't have electricity, didn't have clean water, didn't have public transport, didn't have free schooling, didn't have free hospitalization. And still you're paying for your house way more than you would pay in Marseille, say. So how do you explain that? You explain that by that triangle of real estate, banking sector, and political class that was holding the economy and basically uh, driving us towards bankruptcy. Let's talk some about that political class. Who are they exactly? And are they the same as or tied to a capitalist class? Or yeah, what, what is the class structure at the top end? This is definitely a capitalist class, but it's not a productive capitalist class. So, so don't imagine like a, even like a neoliberal. I don't know if there is such a thing as a real neoliberal model, but really the people who are running the country were people who had set in place are the people who basically ran the civil war. They are exactly the warlords. And then at the end of the Lebanese civil war, there was an alliance with, between some of those and businessmen, uh, some of whom had worked in the Gulf particularly, and so there was a deal to set up a, a second republic in Lebanon, and that republic was basically made of warlords and their business partners, and that's who ran the country. So is it a capitalist class? Yes, it's a banking class, but it's not banks that really like lend money for productive sectors. It's banks that are used to pass on the money to uh, either uh, the state so it can re- be reused as clientelistic networks or to other kinds of shady deals. The World Bank also pointed to uh, the, uh, this confessional system whereby uh, certain offices are reserved for members of certain religions uh, as, as just a mask for elite capture. Is that a fair characterization? And could you ex- uh, ex- expand on that? Yes, yes, absolutely. So if you, uh, if you want to go back to actually our, the way in which we were governed during colonial times, uh, the Lebanese society was divided into sectarian groups, and that was an easy way for uh, European uh, colonizers to actually organize and divide the society. And the modern nation state that was set in place by the French since 1936 had as the law of uh, citizenship that we had, basically a recognition of individuals through the sect, through the religious sect. And there's 19 sects and you have, you're born into one of them. So you cannot exist in the country as a citizen who's secular. You exist through a religious sect. 
That means that employment in the public sector, uh, positions in the state, benefits you can get from the state are redistributed through the sectarian system. Now, is this our constitution? No, this is the practice. This is how things became. And uh, the story went that if you didn't divide them equitably between the different sects, you would end up with a civil war. That is inaccurate, but that is what allowed or perpetuated our division into these groups. And that's what strengthened the rule of sectarian warlords who during the war positioned themselves as as defending particular communities. And we continue to see this rhetoric to date. If you just watch our television over the last week and you see all the political speeches, Across the political spectrum, there is a threat to the Lebanese. If you're Christian, be careful. The Muslim Shiites are coming to eat you. The Muslim Sunnis are coming to hurt you. This, uh, it's only about reminding people that you are in these clans. So that's a very good characterization. Okay, let's talk some about foreign actors. I guess they're fairly prominent in, in Lebanese life. France, which had a long colonial relation. What is the current role of France in Lebanese life? Well, France is trying today to position itself as a broker that is trying to stand on the side of civil society and to pressure government, at least that's their PR, uh, to pressure the government to uh, enact some uh, direly needed reforms. Does France really just care about that? We are in a region that's absolutely polarized. And we have within our country multiple, if you want, political projects, some of which uh, don't stop at the borders of Lebanon. Uh, the support that uh, particularly Hezbollah has with uh, its alliance with the Syrian government, with Iran, carries a project which is transnational. The resistance to that project is also transnational and carries networks all the way to Saudi Arabia and its natural allies being currently the Europeans, France included. So when France says reforms, is it positioning itself as a broker? That's objective. Is it positioning itself as a party within that uh, regional division? It's difficult to distinguish between the two. And that's where I think uh, it's important to understand. But France has, in the last three decades, bailed out one Lebanese party multiple times and really sort of supported the perpetuation of uh, the political system as it existed, because every time they went out of money, they went bankrupt, there was basically a conference in Paris that would support the Lebanese government and bring in money. So it's not an outsider to Lebanon's internal place, even though at some level, as people active in the country uh, who are looking for reform, it does give us a a sense of, uh, I don't want to say optimism, but it is important that we hear external pressure on our government to uh, introduce some of the critically needed reforms. I'm speaking with Mona Fawaz, a professor of urban studies and planning at the American University of Beirut. And then what about the role of Iran and Hezbollah? Yeah, exactly. That's the other axis, right? I mean, you can't understand uh, Hezbollah as without understanding the history of Lebanon that was occupied by Israel for many years. And Hezbollah was not born out of thin air. Hezbollah was uh, born out of a dire need within the Lebanese society to defend itself against the continuous invasion incursions uh, of the Israeli army on uh, Lebanon. That resistance found from the beginning support in Iran. It eventually materialized into a global project that definitely goes beyond the borders of Lebanon and connects Hezbollah with Iran with a vision which is quite transnational. And that sort of creates a a network of uh, resistance to, I don't know, what's called uh, the the American interferences in the area, uh, the Saudi extension, etc. It is something that at the heart of it hits against the idea of having a modern nation state because it's transnational. It doesn't see borders. It doesn't respect borders. It's also something which is profoundly undemocratic. Because we don't vote as Lebanese on what Hezbollah does, what wars it decides to engage in. So there's definitely something at the core which stands against the possibility of creating a state as long as uh, such powerful actors in the country who are also militarized and are way better equipped than the Lebanese army and way better trained and disciplined than any non-army actually, I think, in the world, Uh, It's really difficult to imagine that we can have a project of a modern nation state as long as they're there. Okay, and then Israel, which, of course, has invaded many times, done all kinds of mischief. Um, What's the current status with Israel? 
We're at war. Israel uh, occupied Lebanon multiple times. Israel continues today to uh, extend its reach in Lebanon, including in uh, the oil that was uh, the natural gas that was recently found in the sea. Israel has already uh, not respected international borders and commissioned companies to come and extract those natural resources, although uh, Lebanon has very clear claims that are pushed, by, uh, that are supported by documents uh, from the UN uh, that show that Israel is actually uh, inside Lebanese water territories. So uh, Israel has uh, continued not to uh, allow the Lebanese society to imagine a possibility of another relationship with Israel as an entity and the Zionist project because it has continued to be faithful in its strategies towards Lebanon to the original Zionist narrative of colonial occupation. It's been a bit over a year since the port explosion. Has there been any kind of, uh, anyone been brought to justice? Has there been any kind of physical or social uh, repair done or has it just uh, festered since? I mean, look, in terms of the repair, uh, you have to give credit to people and to their ability to uh, try and fix back their uh, their lives. There has been an enormous effort on the side of Lebanese society, supported by substantial, substantial interventions by international organizations, to actually uh, rebuild the city, to rebuild people's homes, to encourage people to come back. And if you go to the neighborhoods that were very severely affected by the blast, you would see a partial return to life. You would see a lot of efforts many of us are doing to repair public spaces, to repair people's homes, to recreate a sense of a collective around uh, neighborhoods that can actually uh, reclaim the city and bring back the possibility of life being back in neighborhoods that are among the oldest and most precious in the city. Now, that said, accountability was on the table since the first day. And that is really uh, very important to understand because the people killed in the blast and affected by the blast are from all religious sects. And so that created a platform of solidarity across all religions in Lebanon with a demand for accountability. And that demand of accountability coming from a platform which is secular and which is asking exactly for that, that people who were responsible for the port blast, and not only those who brought the boat, but also the ministers, the parliamentarians who were aware that this Explos these explosives were in the Beirut port and did nothing about it, that these individuals be brought to justice. And that demand for accountability is what uh, has created this tension with the political class that feels right now that is being threatened. The first judge that was uh, assigned the case was uh, sacked after a lot of resistance and clear demands from uh, the various political parties. And more recently, the second judge who's been on the case and who has asked for the former prime minister, the ministers in charge to actually be interrogated at least, is seeing himself today clearly attacked across the entire political spectrum with the ridicule, uh, ridiculous claim that he is politicizing the port blast because he is asking for accountability for, for example, a minister of interior who was in charge of internal security for these people and was aware that there was ammonium nitrate, but tells you today, oh, I didn't know what ammonium nitrate is. Similar for the minister who was in charge of the security of the port, the prime minister who was aware of the existence of this nitrate. So clearly there is a demand for accountability and clearly including the clashes you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast with the militias fighting on the street is the effort deployed by the thugs hired by the warlords to basically tell us there is no accountability and if you continue to demand it this is what's going to happen but i think this time there's really more and more awareness among multiple sectors of society that we can't afford to go back to 1990 and give them another uh, amnesty. Do those warlords break down along religious lines or are they just interested in money? They break down around sectarian lines, that's for sure. But, uh, they definitely are aligned on their interests. So uh, like for me to get supported uh, as a warlord, I'm going to have to hire people in multiple sectors of uh, the Lebanese state. So I'm going to have to hire them as... Uh, I don't know, soldiers in the army, teachers in public schools, any post in the state you want. And so they divide the jobs 
and each one of them has a certain quota and they continue to increase it and to distribute it. Uh, they also divide among each other's uh, the uh, all the subsidies, all the uh, franchises, the rights to uh, uh, import stuff, uh, the right to have uh, provide a certain service. So uh, the alignment of sect and class helps the, uh, the divisions along sect help them divide the spoils, while this principle of sectarianism allows them to maintain their rule and the organization of this division. Lebanon has a reputation uh, for being uh, one of the more open and democratic countries in the region. Um, first of all, is there any truth to that reputation? And second of all, does the polity have any influence over what happens in politics, or is it just uh, run by elites? If you compare Lebanon to Syria under uh, President Assad or Iraq under uh, President Hassan, obviously Lebanon is way more democratic. We have a system that uh, allows us still to uh, speak our mind. Increasingly, there is a crackdown on activists. Increasingly, uh, people are getting interrogated for a Facebook post or uh, something they said in a protest. So there is harassment. It's not harassment free. Uh, when we protest, uh, we do get sometimes attacked, uh, tear gassed to death. And uh, uh, during the uh, protest of October 2019, we, uh, we were tear gassed daily. Uh, there were rubber bullets. Some of the activists were actually severely injured, died. So it's not violence-free, but if you compare it to what you see in the region, certainly there's still uh, maintained a level of freedom. And part of this is uh, the existence of uh, institutions like the institution where I teach, the American University of Beirut, and others that really have maintained a culture of free speech, of free thinking, that plays a strong role in maintaining uh, uh, this, this vibrant feeling of uh, social diversity, freedom of speech, ability to speak in the country. So that's Definitely true. Does this freedom of speech translate into actual political action with public actors who are accountable? No. And this is really uh, what's a little bit ironic, if you want, because I remember uh, uh, when I started reading the new newspaper, right, when I was like 1920, and I would read things and I would tell my mother, oh, my God, tomorrow the world's going to explode. Did you see the scandal and then slowly you realize that uh, there is an implicit realization that you can say whatever you want, no one cares, and no one is accountable. So that means that uh, society in general has become also quite blasé. Everyone recognizes that they're corrupt, but that it's very, very difficult to move them, particularly because of the entanglement between uh, uh, who rules us and how we're divided, and then the geopolitical context in which we are. So where is this all going? Is the country going to sink deeper into depression and violence? Or yeah, where, where, what's going to happen? <laughs> this is right the million-dollar question. The thing is, Lebanon is a small country. So my optimism comes from the fact that when I think that we are, what, 4 million Lebanese, 1 million Syrian refugee, a couple of hundred Palestinian refugees, and a few hundred thousand migrant workers, that's the population. So it's uh, quite a diverse uh, but still small population. Uh, when I think about that, I tend, and I think about the size of our debt around, uh, which we feel is so huge, it's less than the money of many of the very rich people that you that you hear about. So the country can easily turn around, and the country has amazing human capital, has a lot of people who care about it and are invested in change. And uh, one thing that's beautiful that happened in the last couple of years, particularly after after the protests in October 2019, is that a lot of young people have reconciled themselves with the principles of politics and the desire to be involved in public life. So these things give me at some level hope that uh, we do have a chance to emerge from where we are. I don't think we can do it without a change in the geopolitical context. So a lot of us are uh, regularly trying to uh, hope that something can happen between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, between the US and Iran, because this will influence us a lot and will allow us to be able to move on or not. Uh, as long as the level of tension is so high at the geopolitical level, 
I think it's going to be very, very difficult internally to address things. But it's not impossible. Uh, some of the fights that we want, uh, including those at the municipal level, where it is about a better life, uh, more ecological life, more accountability, at least at the local level of governance, are not impossible to attain. So I find hope in this. I find hope in uh, so many of my students uh, now uh, wanting to talk about politics, wanting to go to protest, wanting to be involved. So it's it's not as hopeless as it is, but it's certainly a very difficult moment in the country. That was Mona Fawaz, a professor of urban studies and planning at the American University of Beirut. Towards the end of the interview, Mona Fawaz noted that Lebanon's foreign debt was less than many of our famous plutocrats' net worth. She's right. The country's foreign debt is around $70 billion, which would put it as tied with Michael Bloomberg as number 10 in the Forbes 400 list of U.S. billionaires. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the scherzo from the first string quartet by Robert Schumann, performed by the Emerson Quartet. My next guest is the cultural critic Mark Deary. Mark had an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education back in May on the devolution of the media scholar and NYU professor Mark Crispin Miller into a conspiracy theorist. Miller is touting theories that COVID is a hoax and vaccines are a plot by Bill Gates to thin the global population. And not only that, but that school shootings are staged by gun control advocates and maybe Trump had a point about the election having been stolen. In September 2020, one of Miller's students at NYU complained about his talking this sort of thing in class. Her complaint was seconded by some of his colleagues, and Miller responded by suing them. Whether professors should be called to account for wacky things they say in class is a complicated question that I'm setting aside here. But Miller's case is interesting, and the prominence of conspiracy theories around COVID and the rest, and I'm already anticipating the emails I'm going to get for using the term conspiracy theory, in these days is remarkable. Why? Where do they come from? Mark has been writing about this topic for some time. He discussed conspiracy thinking in his 1999 essay collection, The Pyrotechnic Insanitarium. Mark Deary's most recent books are I Must Not Think Bad Thoughts and Born to be Posthumous, a biography of Edward Gorey, which he discussed in this show when it came out in 2018. Mark Deary. Mark Crispin Miller, um, once a very respected media critic, has gone completely around the bend, or several bends. Um, Could you, first of all, uh, just lay out what Mark has been thinking and saying lately? Well, lately, um, and and you hint at his intellectual uh, rake's progress, Miller has, um, in recent years, uh, really since the advent of COVID, been propounding any number of conspiracy theories and like a true conspiracist, and we should probably define that term for your audience. You know, Joseph Usinski, who teaches political science at the University of uh, Miami, I believe it is, who is a careful scholar of conspiracy theory and uh, and does data-driven studies using polling methods, has found that the majority of Americans subscribe to some species of conspiracy theory, broadly defined. Conspiracism is the belief, contra Marx, you know, who believes class struggle is the engine of, here, of history. Conspiracists believe that conspiracy is the engine of history and that behind every pasteboard mask, as Ahab says in uh, Melville's Moby Dick, there lies an abyss of depravity. So conspiracism is simply the notion that conspiracies are the locomotive piston that drives history. Once you adopt the conspiracist viewpoint, you're all in. 
and you tend to believe in an ever proliferating uh, number of conspiracies, which are all intertwined in a kind of a series of fractal branchings. You can use the image of the rhizomatic tendrils beneath the lawn. You pull up one little tendril and you yank and yank and you discover that it's part of this whole subterranean efflorescence of root systems. In the past year or two, Miller has been propounding the notion that the vaccines not only don't work, but that they have killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that in fact they are designed to thin the human herd, and that behind this nefarious plan is a global cabal of well and truly globalists. He uses the term most closely associated with Infowars, which is that Ted Turner and Bill Gates, Bill Gates seems to be at the head of it, are eugenicist globalists who hope to reduce the Earth's population to a mere fraction of its former number and reduce all of the remaining underlings to what he calls neo-feudal servitude under a bio-fascist regime. And bio-fascism, I gather, is what China has. Face recognition software, the nightmare marriage of an Orwellian superstate with bleeding-edge AI technologies. He believes that masking causes something called mask mouth, which is actually implicated in the death of those who have allegedly died from COVID, that lockdowns are simply prelude to an East Asia versus Eurasia uh, war of the super states in which it's simply a methodology for controlling the intransigent masses. And he has revealed himself to be a 9-11 truther which he bought into a number of years before COVID, but following that and following the epistemological logic of conspiracism as a secular religion, let's be clear, has also subscribed to Sandy Hook trutherism and a Parkland trutherism, both of which are the notion that those were false flag operations, as was 9-11, of course, staged by the state in those cases, to provide legitimation for the stripping away of Second Amendment rights, and that that was simply prelude to disarming the public and dispossessing it of its God-given right to own military-grade assault weapons. I mean, the odd thing about that species of trutherism is every one of these mass killings is deduced as evidence of false flag operations. It will be prelude to the whittling away at Second Amendment rights. We've seen how well that's gone. Be that as it may, those are some of the things Miller believes. And when I interviewed him for my lengthy piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education, at one point I said, well, the fascinating thing to me philosophically is that you seem to make some distinction between beliefs that are beyond the pale. You're all in with Sandy Hook trutherism, Parkland trutherism, 9-11 trutherism, but you don't believe that the moon landing was a hoax. And there was this wonderful moment where there was sort of a brief dramatic pause and he said, well, actually, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and that, that ellipsis uh, is, is the mother of a million little disasters. I've learned to, uh, to see it coming as a career interviewer. He said, everyone likes to rope off the moon landing. That's what we all use to inoculate ourselves against the charge of conspiracy theory. And I, and I'm now channeling MCM, said, I at a lecture did that once flippantly and facetiously. And a gentleman came up to me after the lecture and said, well, have you ever seriously reviewed the evidence? And he said, I was chagrined to admit I hadn't. Most of us have a certain epistemological conservatism where certain things are just bracketed out as beneath consideration. And this fascinatingly is the rabbit hole that conspiracism goes down. No theory is beneath consideration. I asked him about Holocaust denial. And oddly enough, he dodged that bullet and seemed to suggest that 
the evidence in that instance was entirely on one side. I wasn't at all clear why Holocaust denial doesn't equate to moon landing denial. I mean, epistemologically, it's a flat epistemology. They're both on the same level playing field. If your presumption is, and this is really the the rotten spot in the apple, it's what unites RFK Jr., who is a super spreader of vaccine denialism and COVID uh, trutherism on social media, it's what unites him, Mark Crispin Miller, Naomi Wolf, and others, I will say, who are inching toward that precipice, is something that, in Miller's case, does arise out of his media criticism, which is the presumption that all official narratives are quote-unquote propaganda, and that all voices on the margins are therefore more legitimate than any official voice. There's a very tendentious, ideologically tinted presumption on the part of the Millers of the world, which is that anything that comes with the official imprimatur is by definition propaganda. It's the pasteboard mask. It's drawing the veil across the truth. And anything that is marginalized and reviled as conspiracy theory must be the truth because If the truth is always suppressed, what is suppressed must be the truth. Nessa, let's talk about where this comes from. Conspiracy theories are the tendency towards believing in conspiracy theories is sometimes attributed to a lack of rigorous thinking, a lack of scientific knowledge. But uh, conspiracy thought really can't bear randomness or messiness. My analysis of politics comes out of Marxist uh, roots, and I believe a ruling class effectively rules a society, but it's messy. The membership in that ruling class is really kind of hard to define sometimes. They don't always agree with each other. They don't always succeed in their goals. It's, you know, it's complicated. You have to really think about it, and it doesn't always work. In conspiracy land, it's a small group of people who operating in secret who almost always seem to get their way. What is the origin of this pattern of thought? Well, there are two origins. Um, one is the most recent one, and that's the thread I'd prefer to un- unpick But conspiracy theories go back at least to the French Revolution. But in the modern era, our primal scene, what J.G. Ballard calls, um, he calls the Warren Commission Report, the American Book of the Dead, um, and Don DeLillo's Libra is really the Solomonic key to the scriptures in that regard. In the post-war American period, JFK's assassination is the primal scene. Now, this is too neat a narrative. And in theorizing about conspiracy theorizing, one always runs the risk of constricting, of constructing a meta theory of conspiracy theory that itself looks a bit conspiratorial. Because if you're saying that a salient of conspiracy theory is that it's too neat, that it wants to tie up every loose end, that everything is always connected, then we have to be wary of that. But it can be said broadly. That there is a precipitous decline in American faith in government specifically, but in all institutions generally, after JFK. Initially, when the Warren Report comes out, most people buy it. But then quickly, faith in that official narrative erodes. And what's interesting is that we're then buffeted by a series of American catastrophes that really hold below the waterline our faith in explanatory myths and official narratives. So you get JFK's assassination, but then quick on the heels, you get RFK's assassination. MLK's assassination, the assassination of Malcolm X. Then in the 1970s, we discover that the CIA has been involved in skullduggery that is both so absurdist and yet so grotesque that it looks like Andy Kaufman's idea of a of an assassination manual. Then there's COINTELPRO, there's the FBI's infiltration of anti-war groups and the Black Panthers, their very likely assassination of Panthers. And then there's Contragate. And it keeps on rolling to the point where all of those things are actual conspiracies. Ollie North in the basement of the White House um, contravening the will of Congress. So people very legitimately have lost faith in institutions. I'm speaking with the cultural critic, Mark Deary. But there are two other 
aspects of this that I really want to underscore. And one of them is what I call epistemological vertigo, which is simply the fact that we are so inundated with not just information, but with memes and factoids and misinformation and disinformation, and never more so than now, that people become Edgar Allan Poe's, you know, um, narrative of A. Gordon Pym or Descent into the Maelstrom. And instructively, that was an image, that was a master metaphor that Marshall McLuhan was very fond of using. He said that in an age of information overload, we are eddying ceaselessly into the maelstrom. It makes it very difficult to sort competing truth claims And I would argue never more so than the middle of a pandemic where the science is fast moving. It sometimes backtracks and contradicts itself. The public health messaging has been confusing and occasionally inept. And you've got these rarefied hermetic discourses, virology, vaccinology, epidemiology, which most of us are not very well briefed in. The problem with thinkers like RFK and Mark Crispin Miller, Naomi Wolf, is that high IQ, high intelligence often correlates to conspiracism because it encourages a kind of an epistemological arrogance wherein you think, I've got this. I control through PubMed. I can read the double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical studies. And both Miller and Kennedy can cite this stuff chapter and verse. They have it on the tip of their tongues. They've, they've done a deep dive into the medical literature. It's just that they come to confirmation bias and they cherry pick the studies and the elements in the studies out of context and confirm their perceptions. I'm not sure you ever made your second point, but... <laughs> the point I was going to make is that we can't have this conversation without acknowledging the far right's tactical and strategic assault on the very notion of empirical fact and objective truth that has been ongoing since at least Nixon and certainly since Newt Gingrich. And Newt Gingrich's famous memo about the weaponization of language disseminated among GOP true believers in which he says, the news media is the enemy. We must focus on them and attack them. And so it begins in the modern period with Gingrich, and then it is taken up by Trump and Bannon, who believe that we're not just entitled to our own opinions, but we're entitled to our own facts. Rudy famously says, truth isn't truth. Kellyanne Conway famously says, alternative facts. And Bannon, by the way, weaponizes information overload. His whole notion of flooding the zone with is a way of inundating and overwhelming the news media with conflicting narratives, which they then mindlessly recirculate in news coverage and dispossess the citizenry of the ability to make a decision. They can't sort out truth claims because there's so many truth claims and they reach a sort of critical mass. You say that uh, uh, we've lost faith in government, we've lost faith in the institutions, which is certainly correct. But on the other hand, these conspiracy theorists ascribe an enormous amount of competence and power to the conspirators. So like Bill Gates can concoct a global pandemic and um, the vaccines in response to it with presumably a small circle of associates and somehow the, the news doesn't get out except to the, the adepts who understand it all, which is another one of these contradictions. It is supposed to be very, very secret, but somehow these people know. But then, you know, the same thing with uh, Dick Cheney orchestrating 9-11. It seemed like the Bush administration was a very incompetent one in many ways, but Dick Cheney could orchestrate this massive operation with uh, nobody um, writing a tell-all, nobody calling up and, and confessing to their um, machinations. So it's, it's weird faith in the powers of elites, always a very small circle of elites, but it, they do have an immense faith in their power and uh, a Competence and secrecy. Well, that's absolutely true. And I like the way you frame that because, and this may sound self serving, <laughs> one of the reasons I like it is because it feeds me a line uh, that will precipitate another torrent of verbiage, but I'll, I'll try to throttle back a bit. But Hofstadter, Richard Hofstadter, the noted historian of the post war period, has very much fallen out of favor among conspiracy theory theorists because his famous book on the subject suggested at that time 
because he lived in the age of Barry Goldwater and uh, Senator McCarthy and uh, the Red Scare and the Lavender Menace. And so he located conspiracy theorizing on the frothing paleoconservative fringe. And thus, Hofstadter has fallen out of favor because he's seen as uh, needlessly reductive. But he makes one excellent point, I believe among many, but certainly one point that even detractors agree on, which is that he theorizes conspiracy theory as a secular religion. And you put your finger on it nicely. The notion that someone is in control is perversely consoling. And it, that's what links it to the very fundament of religion. In other words, who wants to live in a world where everything is a random walk, where the existentialist perception that we are floating moats of blood, flesh, and bone and consciousness in a godless cosmos, there is no meaning but what meaning we imbue our lives with, you know, as Sartre says, we are condemned to be free. Many people find that a terrifyingly existentially unmoored position. And so the notion that it really is kind of a hilarious inversion of the Victorian paterfamilias or the mosaic, as in Moses of the Old Testament, Judeo-Christian hairy thunderer in the sky, right? It's weirdly consoling to believe that somebody is in control, you know, whether it is the captains of industry in Davos or Bill Gates and George Soros, better that than a chaos and complexity out of which arises as a kind of an epiphenomenon, some of these phenomena. I mean, a lot of what conspiracy theorists forget is that certain things are emergent properties of systems. I I think you and I would agree that cruelty is an emergent property of capitalism, right? It doesn't require individual lever pullers in some sort of satanic sanctum sanctorum, plotting the immiseration of the million for it to happen. It is a feature, not a bug, of the economic system, gross economic inequities and so forth. And they don't credence that. They're not willing to believe that. That's my response to your question about why is there this faith in elites? Because it's fundamentally a religious worldview. And the proof is in the pudding. Both Mark Crispin Miller and Naomi Wolf have moved toward an apocalypticist view in which they now really do believe that there is this eugenic cabal, which it, and it's straight out of Soylent Green. A lot of this rhetoric echoes the disaster films of the 1970s that will all be eating vat-grown cellular pseudo-flesh while Ted Turner and his inner circle feast on uh, bison that will roam a rewilded American savannah. Miller, if you listen to little snippets of him being interviewed by Red Scare or Matt Taibbi, he sounds quite cogent and sober. But if you wade through, as I've done, the several hour long interview he did with Gary Knoll, his peroration is straight out of the apocalypse of John. You know, it is a vision of a planet, as I say, in which the barest remnant of humanity subsists on something very like Soylent Green, while the tech lords far above the seething million feast on what remains of real food. I mean, it's straight out of the scene in Soylent Green where Edward G. Robinson <laughs> discovers a steak and treats Charlton Heston to the taste of real actual flesh. Um, so, so it's the dream of a teleology. It's the dream of history with a forward moment movement. It's the dream of power embodied in a few individuals, and it imposes sanity and a kind of a moral structure on a moment that is far from equilibrium when we're all eddying madly around in the ever tighter concentric spiral of an epistemological maelstrom. What, if anything, should we do about these people? Should we just view them as amusements at some sort of freak show? Uh, They're certainly not uh, open to any kind of rational refutation, so we're not going to change their minds. Should we be outraged? What's the proper uh, treatment of of this, uh, this brand of thought? 
Well, thereby hangs a tail. I mean, there's there's the rub. There's no simple answer because you're quite right. They can't be persuaded by fact, at least these particular individuals. They believe they have mastered the facts and they wade into battle with footnotes flying. But there are those around the edges who can be picked off and moved toward the rationalist, materialist, empiricist this high ground. So for example, you know, there is a real Venn diagram that can be drawn between Whole Foods shopping, Steiner schooling, um, middle-class, highly educated white suburbanites, some many of whom have advanced degrees, and the anti-vaxxer movement. Their rationale for mistrusting big pharma is entirely legitimate. But the way that they prosecute their case through the anti-vaxxer ideology is obviously bonkers. And so I'm a great believer in beating the devil wherever we find him, calling out these people. But it is a fool's, it's tricky because it's a fool's errand to match them fact for fact. What we have to do is tell a better story because we don't proceed on the plank of facts in life. It's narratives that give the signifying monkey meaning. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Um, But the rationalist left has to inlay facts in the mosaic of narrative. Facts themselves will never be compelling. We have to find a way to tell a better story about both these individual issues, whether it's vaccines or 9-11, that mobilize the very real concerns of people across partisan spectrum and up and down the socioeconomic ladder. So if you believe 9-11 was an inside job because you distrust the power elite, that's something that the left can agree with. But we have to find a way to mobilize those sentiments in the service of a more efficacious cause. That was the cultural critic Mark Deary. He has a long piece on conspiracism forthcoming next month on LitHub. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, my standard conspiracy theory soundtrack, Insignificance by the Mekons. Till next week, bye.